The following program is recorded content created by The Truth Network. We're going to have some fun today in the scripture. Give me your best verse in the Bible that shows me where I'm wrong in one of my positions. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, biblical scholar and cultural commentator, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice for moral sanity and spiritual clarity. Call 866-34-TRUTH to get on The Line of Fire. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Brown. Phone lines are open. I can't wait to get into the broadcast today. Yeah, you can hear and see the smile in my voice. Here's the number to call, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. We're gonna have a word-based show today. We've got a really important broadcast coming your way tomorrow, God willing, on a major moral cultural issue. You'll be shocked to hear the things that we talk about on the air today, uh, tomorrow. Today, we're gonna be word-focused and we're gonna have some fun. So if you differ with me, on any of the things that I believe, in particular, if you're a fellow follower of Jesus, but you think I'm wrong on the end times, on aspects of salvation, so, so soteriology or eschatology, or some other beliefs that I have, especially things that I feel strongly about, and you believe I'm wrong on any of those issues, the gifts of the Spirit for today, believers' relationship to the Torah, etc., give me your best verse on any one area where you think I'm wrong, your best verse that proves me wrong. In other words, if you believe in once saved, always saved, what's your best verse to argue for that? If you believe in cessationism, that the sign gifts are no longer for today, what's your best verse to argue for that? If you believe I'm wrong about a pre-trib rapture, what's your best verse to argue against my viewpoint? So. Phone lines are open, and uh, we'll have some interaction. You might say, well, I'm not a debater or a theologian like you are, Dr. Brown, but that, that's fine. I'm, my goal is not to intimidate. My goal is to have friendly interaction, all right? And we, we may go back and forth a little. We, we may go back and forth a lot, but ev everything's open. You may be a Jewish person, and you differ with me about Jesus. You may be a Mormon, and you differ with me about the Bible. And, and Joseph Smith. So phone lines are open. 866-348-7884. And let me say this before I go to the phones. And we may have some other callers that, that got in uh, immediately that just want to raise some other issues. So we'll, we'll talk some other issues too. But let me just say this. Uh, I obviously do not claim infallibility. I'd have to be a fool, an idiot, arrogant jerk to claim infallibility on every point I believe on every subject. That would mean that I alone am right out of all believers in the entire world and everyone else is wrong on something except me. That would be the height of arrogance, foolishness, the, the height of failure to recognize that we're part of a body and that we know in part. At the same time, their hills I'll die on. You know what I'm saying? They're hills on which I have staked my life, my eternal destiny on certain points that I'm super dogmatic about. And that comes from obviously decades of being with God in his word and being convicted and being convinced. There are other areas I feel strongly about. I'd be really surprised to find out I'm wrong on them, but it wouldn't be the end of the world to me. 
And there are other areas that, yeah, I, this is my view, but I, I, I can, I'm open to hear other views. And, but of course, I'm always open to interact and dialogue. All right. 866-34-TRUTH. And again, we may be taking some general calls before we get to your specific responses to my challenge. But we'll start with Eugene in Fort Huachuca. Is that it? In Arkansas. It's Huachuca, sir. <laughs> All right. Well, I was, I was close. I figured I'd give it a try. Yeah. What's yes, on your sir. mind? Close, closer than most people. Yes, sir. So this, uh, this, I'm not sure if I entirely hold to this perspective, but I do remember quite some time you made a comment on how you slightly differ with your typical uh, Reformed Calvinist and their understanding of man's depravity. And hearing Bodhi Bauckham teach out of Genesis 6-5, saying, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention and thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, he basically expounded on this verse saying that anyone outside of Jesus Christ ultimately can never do anything that's good. Okay, that sounds very, very extreme to me, and I do, whenever I do hear the Calvinists or the Reformers talk about man's depravity, it is always in kind of like this really very upfront, uh, confrontational type of extreme way. And I'm just wondering, um, the way he explained it, it did make sense, Dr. Brown, but I'm just wondering, in your perspective, in what ways are they maybe right about this? In what ways do you differ in your understanding of man's depravity? And if there's any other books or resources that you could recommend me that I could further study this on my own, I would also appreciate that, sir. Sure thing. All right, so let me just ask this one question. Uh, if, since we all acknowledge that human beings do good outside of the cross, in other words, uh, outside of being redeemed believers, every day human beings are doing good things, human beings are, are not doing bad things because they, they feel guilty about it. Uh, how do you think uh, Vodi, who I deeply respect, or some of our other Reform brothers would explain that? And in other words, uh, on what basis are people doing good things outside of being born-again believers? Right. Uh, just a quick response. His explanation came out of Romans 8, basically saying that anyone in the flesh cannot uh, please God. And so ultimately, because they don't have a relationship with God, they can never do anything that's ultimately for God's glory, therefore making it not about God, but about something else. And so he said, therefore, it's not ultimately good. So since they're not saved and they can't live for God's glory, therefore, even what seems to be good that they're doing is not ultimately good. That was his explanation. Right, right. So if we're defining things like that, that a human being that is not born again will not do something with no ulterior motive whatsoever other than only the glory of God, then perhaps you could make that argument, and, and I'd accept that. But when you have the impression that human beings don't do any good outside of being born-again believers, scriptures really say other than that in other ways. So the broad thing I agree with is that we are hopelessly fallen, that we are sinful creatures outside of the gospel, that if left to ourselves, we will go away from God, not towards God. Right, the old Luther adage that a rock can go up and down. It goes up if you pick it up. It goes down if you drop it. So I agree with that. So in that sense of total depravity, our need for a savior, our, our inability to save ourselves or draw near to God or approach God, no, in ourselves we will never do that without being drawn by God and changed by God. So 
I agree on that score. But we also have examples of, of people doing good that God acknowledges as doing it. For, for example, King Abimelech in Genesis, the 20th chapter. Uh, what does it say there? That, that he did not, that, that God saw the integrity of his heart. And because he saw the integrity of his heart, therefore, he didn't allow Abimelech to commit adultery with Sarah, right? Because he knew that Abimelech didn't know that it was another man's wife, and he saw the integrity of his heart. So that's a human being outside the cross of, of which God says, I saw the integrity of his heart. So I believe based on the principle of human beings still being created in the image of God, although it is now through the image of Adam, so it is in the image of God yet fallen. That's Genesis 5. And since John 1 tells us that, that the Son of God lights everyone that comes into the world, I do believe that there is human conscience and based on that, that there are aspects where I don't see every human being every day doing only that which is depraved. If that was the case, obviously the whole world would be destroyed. So I agree with the large picture that's being painted. Some of the spe specific nuances of it, I would see differently. Um, the book, The Grace of God and the Will of Man, uh, is a useful book on some of the larger issues the grace of God and the will of man. I don't know how much it gets into these. I have to, I have to check and I'll, I'll get you the editors during a break. Uh, but the grace of God and the will of man, I, I found to be a thoughtful response to Calvinism. So again, fundamental amen to the large picture that's being painted, some differences in the nuances, as you said. Hey, uh, thank you for the call. Uh, 866-34-TRUTH. Let's, uh, let's go to Mike in Owensboro, Kentucky. Welcome to the line of fire. Uh, thank you for taking my call, Dr. Brown. I appreciate it. Sure. And I don't have, uh, um, I don't really want to, I don't really disagree with uh, a viewpoint you have, but I would like you to ask, to ask you to clarify it. I want to ask about something that you wrote a while back uh, mm -hmm. in a book, you know, over 20 years ago. And see if you think any differently on that subject than you do now. Great. Um, years ago, you wrote a book called uh, Let No One Deceive You. And in that book, you had a chapter on, well, it was on end-time revival, and it was on harvest, mm -hmm. about how it's harvest time. Yeah. And you were, you were contending for a last day's harvest. Okay. Now, the reason I bring this up is because I kind of have an overarching fear, and I'll tell you where that stems from. Myself, just like a lot of other people in the faith, we are waiting for an end-time revival, an awakening, a move of God, something you know that's going to make a difference in this mm -hmm. culture. And while we're, yep. we're not resting on our laurels, you know, we are anxiously awaiting for God to do something mighty, as he has done in the past. Yes. Here's my overarching fear. You know, I'm aware of the Welsh Revival, the Azusa Street Revival, it, which was in the early 20th century. Then, the, you know, a healing revival, uh, 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 the Jesus Movement. And then that spawned kind of a, a charismatic uh, movement and yep. renewal. And then some of the later things, like, you know, 
Pensacola and things like that. And what I'm what I'm kind of of, of uh, concerned about is all that that happened in the 20th century that a lot of it Im- really impacted my life and my family and just the way we worship, the way we see everything. And I'm wondering, did the revival already happen? Did the harvest already happen? Am, am, I, am I anxiously awaiting something that has already occurred uh, and is already in history. And do you feel any differently about it being harvest time got it. than you did like 23 years ago? All right, I'm going to answer fully on the other side of the break. But do I believe what I wrote back then? Yeah, 100%. Absolutely, 100%, without question. I'm going to respond in more detail on the other side of the break. Hey, friends, one phone line's open if you want to call in, 866-34-TRUTH. Tell me where I'm wrong on something. Give me your best verse. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on The Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for welcoming for welcoming us. For, thank you for welcoming us into your home. Thank you for joining us on The Line of Fire, 866-348-7884. Sometimes during the break, um, I'm looking at some things posted or interacting and Something is in my head from the break into the intro, but I don't know where the welcoming came from. But thank you for welcoming us into your homes, into your hearts, into your lives. 866-348-7884. Purpose of today's show is to get into the word and have some enjoyable time iron sharpening iron. If you believe I'm wrong on any position that I hold to, by all means, give me a call and give me your best single verse that backs your position. So Mike in Owensboro, Kentucky, when I wrote what I wrote about harvest time in Let No One Deceive You, which was then republished as the Revival Answer Book, I wrote it based on a lot of things happening in the world along with what Scripture says. In other words, what missiologists will tell us is that more people have been saved, say, in the last 75 years than in the first 1900 plus years of church history combined. Some would argue that more Muslims have come to the faith in the last 10 or 20 years than in the previous 1300 years. So there is a massive harvest of souls around the world. The Christian population of Africa has shifted dramatically from countries where it was less than 1% of the population of the country to being 40 or 50%. Uh, Same in Latin America, massive growth. Same in other parts of Asia, massive growth. So there is a massive harvest taking place around the world. Now, with that, there's a need to make disciples. With that, there's a need to increase teaching and strengthen local churches, things like that. But that's a, a reality. Any solid missiologist will tell you there is unprecedented church growth that's taking place, especially since World War II, and especially since the last 50 years. Um, Then I see the word painting a picture of parallel extremes at the end of the age, of great outpouring and great apostasy. Uh, As Jesus says in Matthew 13, the harvest is the end of the age, and there's going to be a multitude of good fish caught and bad fish. There's going to be the wheat. There's going to be the tares. There's going to be the light shining. There's going to be gross darkness. So I'm expecting 
an increase in darkness and light until we reach the end of the age. Just like on the planet, any one moment, one part's lit up, the other part's dark, right? I'm expecting that as we get closer and closer to the end. And I see the Bible speak of final outpouring and final apostasy. So my views haven't changed at all. As for, uh, is, is the last great revival passed? Certainly not, because there's no way we can have the harvest that we need to have. There's no way that great light can shine in the midst of, of darkness without a greater move than we've ever seen. That being said, I'm not waiting for that. I'm looking to Jesus every day to honor him, to be a disciple, and to make disciples. At the same time, I'm praying for God to do things we've never seen him do on the earth for the glory of his son and for the honor of his name and for the good of this lost and dying world. And uh, I do believe that we're going to see a massive move of the spirit sweep America and shake the nation just as we're being shaken by so many other things. I believe that for years. I still believe it, but I'm not waiting for it in that regard. I'm honoring the Lord day by day. Hey, thank you, sir, for your call. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to William in Canton, Georgia. Yes, sir, uh, please tell me where you think I'm wrong. I'd love to hear from you. Okay. Hey, I'm an Anglican priest, and I have, I have a stronger uh, sacramental theology than you do. Hello? Yeah, I'm here. Hello. Go ahead. Okay. Did you, I'm an Anglican priest. Yeah, I got it. I, I heard you. I heard you. Yes, so, sir. Let me comment on Luke 7, and maybe you can pull it up for the people. Luke sure. 7, yep. 29 and 30. And there are two becauses there that indicate that when they acted on the presence of the sacrament, oh, John's baptism, something happened, and it wasn't just obedience. They received the grace of being able to listen to Jesus and accept him. That indicates that a sacrament does something more than just activate obedience. There was an actual grace given. Mm -hmm. That's the Anglican position. Yeah, so uh, I don't know. Uh, let me read the verses, all right? Yeah, so sure. Jesus says in John 7, I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this in the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God, not having been baptized by him. So I, I want to give two responses, one exegetical and one theological. The theological, I'm going to agree with you. The exegetical, I'm going to differ with you. Uh, ex exegetically, I, uh, what I understand Jesus to be saying here is not a because. I'm just, just looking at the Greek here. Yeah, I'm... I'm not understanding this as a because, but rather the ones who were baptized with, by John, they were excited to hear what Jesus was saying because they were in harmony with him. He was, he was defending them. And the ones who weren't baptized by John, they were upset with Jesus because he was speaking against them. That's all I see this text saying. However, I do believe, even though I'm not a Catholic and, and you're not, I do believe that God works through the sacraments. So yes, you're more sacramentally oriented than I am. And you could be right. In, in other words, this is not a hill that I die on, all right? But I, I do believe that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, that no, he's not physically present. I don't believe in transubstantiation. So he's not physically present in, in the wafer and, and, and the, the juice, but I believe his presence is there as we do it. And, and the, 
there is power to heal and forgive as we partake. And the same way I believe that in baptism, although I believe in baptism for believers, not for infants, so that's another discussion, but I believe that God does something, that it's not just an outward sign that the presence of God is there, and that to the extent we take hold of that, that there is power in it. So, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, and we Anglicans would call, for instance, the Lord's Supper. Oh, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, we Anglicans would say that in the Lord's Supper there's a real presence. Yes. And don't go beyond that. You know, yeah. don't go into transubstantiation. But something really happens to the person when they receive communion. Yes, yes. So, so, so we agree there. So theologically we're in sync, uh, yes. not, not in everything, but yeah, for sure. Hey, as an Anglican priest, thank you for listening to the broadcast and calling in and, and having us emphasize these points together. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. All right. 866-34-TRUTH. I love having dialogue. Okay, let's go to Mark in Louisville, North Carolina. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown, it's good to talk to you again. Uh, if I had permitted... Hello? I'm here. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I need permission to read two passages. I can't do it in one passage. Uh, but as you know, you know, I don't believe in a literal 1,000-year millennial kingdom. Uh-huh. But if you could, I'll, I'll read these two real quick, and you can... Answer. Yeah, go ahead. You can answer. You bet. Okay, John John six fifty four. Whosoever eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's believers. John twelve forty eight. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. It sounds to me like Jesus is saying the unbelievers and the believers are going to be raised at the same time, which uh, goes perfectly with uh, Matthew thirteen thirty, the wheat and the tares, uh, let them both grow together. How can there be a literal 1,000-year millennial after that? I'm Got it. up and hear your answer. Okay, Thank sure. You. Stay there. Can, are you still here, Mark? Yes. yes. Oh, okay, just, just one question for you. Uh, sure. Sure. As, as you see the second coming, right, uh, yes. Jesus uh, appears in glory. Where are, are we then as believers resurrected to meet him? The dead in Christ will rise first. Do you believe that, First Thessalonians 4? Absolutely, absolutely, yes. Got it. Okay, so at that same time, are, mm-hmm. is, is, so we're resurrected to meet him. So that's the, this, at that same time, are the wicked dead raised? Absolutely, and you can confirm that with John uh, five twenty nine. Got it. And, oh, okay, and, so and so your your yeah. scenario then is that when Jesus returns, that it says we're we're caught up to meet him in the air, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, so we're transformed, but at, at that same time, all the wicked dead are also raised. That's that's what John. Uh, right. Okay, and and then and then caught up to meet him in the air also. That's, they are judged. They don't necessarily meet him in there, but they are resurrected. That is what the uh, the uh, sheep and goat judgment is. Got it. Oh, okay, time. so got it. Got it. Okay, just wanted to be clear on that. All right. So sure. here, here's so so. Thank you, sir, for the question. You could make a case for that using Daniel twelve two as well. All right. You, you could definitely make a case for your argument based on these verses that the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous occurs at the same time called 
the last day, and you are therefore interpreting First uh, Thessalonians 4 in harmony with that, even though Paul only mentions the resurrection of the righteous there. So you could definitely make a case for that based on those verses. John 5, you mentioned, they all fit together and they would work. Potentially, Second Peter 3, although it doesn't mention resurrection there, could tie in. So the question is, why don't I accept that? Why do I believe there's a millennial kingdom? And then after that, the final resurrection. So perfectly fair question. Good verses to support your view. And you, you could make that point. All right. So why don't I accept it? I'll explain it on the other side of the break, but totally legitimate. Fair use of the scripture, sir. I agree with you. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on The Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thank you so much for calling in today. Our phone lines are jammed right now. I want to get to as many calls as I can. I've got to respond to Mark uh, from before the break. Before I do that, there is limited seating for our trip to Israel, God willing, May of next year. I've actually been thinking about it a lot. I had dreams we're on the tour together. It doesn't mean something prophetic. It just means I've been thinking about it when I dream about things. So can't wait to see you there. Check out the details on the website. Couples, families, individuals. AskDrBrown.org. A-S-K-D-R-Brown.org. Right on the homepage. Find out about it. The earlier you register, You'll be guaranteed a seat as you do. So today we've asked you to call in and give me your best verse to argue against something that I believe. So Mark just uh, called in. He's called in before, and we've had some dialogue back and forth. But red verses indicating, pointing to the resurrection of the righteous and, and the unrighteous at the same time, at the last day. The hour is coming. Jesus will do this. And there are other verses I brought in, like Daniel 12, 2, that would seem to support that. So why do I not believe that? Why do I believe that Jesus will return? There'll be the resurrection of the righteous, then a thousand-year millennial kingdom, after which there'll be the final resurrection, judgment of the wicked, and then the eternal age. Matthew 25 was also alluded to by Mark in support of his view. So, if that's the case, so be it. In other words, if he's right, if there is no millennial kingdom, if Jesus returns at the end of this age and we go straight into eternity, so be it. That's not a hill I die on. Here's why I don't believe it. First, Peter tells us in Acts 3 that Jesus will not return until the time of the restoration of all things spoken of by the prophets. And the, the prophets, if we read Isaiah 2, if you read Isaiah 11, spoke very much of a literal kingdom on the earth where the nations of the world will come to Jerusalem to learn from the God of Israel. Zechariah 14, the survivors of the nations that attacked Jerusalem will come to worship, and those that don't will be judged. A time of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So I see all these verses spoken of that haven't come to pass yet that Peter tells us in Acts 3, beginning verse 19, will. Then, when I get into the book of Revelation, yes, I understand that there's much symbolism in the book of Revelation. 
And I understand that numbers can be taken to have different meanings. Fully understand that. Recognize it. But you have Revelation 19, the return of Jesus in glory, King of kings, Lord of lords. Clear. Bringing judgment on a sinful world. Indisputable. And in terms of that's what's being painted there. Then you have Revelation 20, which speaks six times. Six times of a thousand year reign. And then the new heavens and the new earth after that. And it speaks of Satan being bound for a thousand years, but he hasn't been bound yet. He's continuing to deceive the nations even now, right? So if I'm trying to figure out, okay, when did this happen? Well, it, it hasn't yet happened, the binding of Satan for a thousand years. Then John says, Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who would not worship the beast or its image, not receive the mark in their heads, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So there are verses about us reigning with Jesus, quite a few actually, about us reigning with Jesus. I just wrote an article about that on stream.org. So understand this is when it happens. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they'll reign with him for a thousand years. Then when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released. So to me, that's crystal clear. It's a thousand years is repeated over and over and over and over. We're promised to reign with the Lord. This is after the second coming, but before the new heavens and the new earth of Revelation 21, 22. So, what do I do with all the verses that Mark referred to and others? Understand that it is very common in prophetic language, that it, it puts a large picture in, in a, short, uh, a short picture, that it's the proverbial two mountains that you see and you think it's one mountain, it's actually two that are separated. And we have, look at Isaiah 52, 13 to 15. Isaiah 52, 13 to 15. What does that speak of? It speaks of the exaltation of the Messiah and his terrible suffering. So the terrible suffering, first coming, exaltation, second coming, all telescoped into one. Or Isaiah 61, where the Lord comes to bring comfort and to bring judgment. Jesus quotes the first part, the comfort part, in his first sermon in Luke 4. The judgment part is later than that. So that's how I see it. They are telescoped together. But fair question, totally fair question. That's my answer as to why I see it the way I do. All right, let us go to... Zev in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I am. I saw a counter missionary video about uh, Jeremiah 31, um, and then he was cross referencing. Correct me if I get it wrong. Hebrews 8, I believe, about where it's basically talking about one verse says God uh, was faith, you know Israel was not faithful to God, but God remained Israel's husband and. You know, my understanding of Jeremiah 31, the whole the whole chapter is basically God recounting his faithfulness, and it ends with him saying, you know, if, you know, if the stars cease to exist and, and so forth, then, you know, Israel will cease to be a people before me. So I went and read a uh, apologetics view of it, and where it says uh, God uh, God had dis- dis- discarded us, had no regard for us, cast off. I, I, I'm not sure if I'm quoting it exactly right. But it seems to imply something completely different. And the, um, the description given or the reason given was Septuagint and that it's a gimel in the beginning and it changes the meaning of the word to disregard it. And 
even if that was true, I don't know how, in context, you could say that entire chapter, and then you get to a verse where God says, I have dis- discarded Israel or divorced Israel or, di- or had no regard for them or put them away, when later in that chapter mm-hmm. God reaffirms his commi- commitment to Israel. And I found this seems like a verse that would scream of replacement theology and this view that oh, no, 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 it's not. No, it's not. It's not. It's not replacement theology at all. And, and, and thanks Ev, for, for the question. So the issue is why the uh, the New Testament Hebrews eight, which quotes Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 34 in full and is the uh, the lengthiest quotation of an Old Testament passage in the new. And then part of it's quoted again in Hebrews 10 why it reads differently than the Hebrew text that we have in our Masoretic Bibles uh, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no re- concern for them, declares the Lord, or others would even say I rejected them. Throughout the Old Testament, Zev, God rejects Israel. Not forever, all right? He rejects them all the time because of their sin. It commonly happens, and he even uses that language. Like, read Hosea 1 and 2. What, why is Hosea told to name one of his kids Lo-Ami and another Lo-Ruchama? Lo-Ami means not my people. God says, you're not my people. Well, yeah, they're still his people, but they're not his people. Lurukama, he's not going to have any compassion on them. Does he still have mercy? Yes, but for seasons he rejects them. He, he has wrath and anger. So that's all this is saying. There's, there's no disagreement. The Septuagint, this is by Jewish translators, before Jesus, there's nothing of replacement theology in the Septuagint by Jewish translators. So that's just a weak counter-missionary argument. Uh, one, one textual tradition says... God was a husband to them. The other textual tradition says God rejected them. Either way, it's the same thing. It's the same promise that he's going to be faithful to them in the long term, even though in the short term, he rejected. Here, does not Jeremiah tell us early, earlier in the book, chapters 2, 3, 4, because of Israel's unfaithfulness, that God divorced them? So that's already in Jeremiah, that God divorced them. But he's going to take them back if they repent. So it's the same thing here. There's just two different sides of the same coin, and the overall meaning of the passage remains absolutely identical. All right, so we are taking questions on other subjects, but in particular, looking for those who differ with me. Uh, Let's go to, oh, let's see, let's go to Terry in Montreal, Canada. Yeah, uh, where do you differ with me, sir? Uh, Thank you, thank you. Uh, I wanted to know, uh, before I ask you my question or stipulate my position, do you believe a person who doesn't believe in the classical slash orthodox position of the incarnation to be a heretic? In other words, uh, I don't believe Jesus had uh, two embodiments, uh, divine nature and a human nature. All right, so do you believe that he was fully human or... He was fully... My position stipulates that he was fully divine in heaven. Uh, he inhabits eternality as per Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. He stretches out the heavens as per Second Samuel twenty two ten, and he sends his light. Uh, and at the end of that light was a fully human person, the Messiah. So, so uh, was John, was he God in the flesh? He was God in the sense not uh, his ontology, but his uh, he had the title uh, God still because he humbled himself as per. But, but uh, in, in his in his being, since God does not change his essence. Right, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews thirteen eight, Malachi three six. I'm the Lord. I do not change. Was yeah. he the same eternal God, simply not operating in his divine prerogatives? But was he the same eternal God in 
the flesh. Uh, no, he obviously was, didn't have uh, his eternal nature. And as for the changing, I don't believe God, the, the son changed because he was still in heaven. That's why I was about to quote John 3.13. No one has ascended or descended, but he who uh, descended, even the son of man who is in heaven. So as he's on earth, fully human, being linked by that light, being projected by himself in eternality, two yeah. different realities. So my model is one uh, one person, two natures, two different realities. So um, you're suggesting that he is eternal. Well, you would have to respond to uh, Jeremiah 23, 6, where it says he will be called by the eternal name that he's supposed to have, Yahweh, our righteousness. And you would have to respond to Psalms 2, 7 that says today... In candor, in, in candor, since you went up my position, I, I did ask for a, one best verse that argues with me, but that's, that's fine. God's your judge. I'm not your judge. God's your judge, but I believe you're, you're quite wrong in your position. God's your judge, not me. So I'm not going to tell you whether you're saved or not or in right relationship with God or not. That's between you and God. And God meets us in various stages of knowledge and ignorance and takes us deeper. However, absolutely, I say your position is wrong because, first, the, those other verses you mentioned to me are, don't, don't prove your point at all, the, the last couple, Jeremiah 23, Psalm 2, just to be candid. But quite flatly, your Jesus is not the same yesterday, today, and forever. So you wanted my view. I'm, I'm giving it to you. And I'll finish on the other side of the break. Thanks. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Yeah, so just to respond quickly to uh, Terry's other points, and I'm just doing this in, in short here. Uh, Jesus identifying himself as I am. Jesus having the authority to forgive sins. Jesus being recognized by demons as the Holy One of God. Jesus receiving worship both before and after uh, his, his uh, resurrection. And yes, post-resurrection, but when Thomas refers to him as my Lord and my God, you might say post-resurrection is different. I don't have time to get into those nuances here. But uh, for, for sure, he is operating as God. Colossians 2 tells us that the fullness of the deity dwells in him in bodily form. Colossians 2.9. The fullness of the deity dwelt in him in bodily form. In Psalm 102, the end of that psalm about the Lord, the creator, is spoken with regard to the Son incarnate in Hebrews, the first chapter. So, Terry, with all respect to the thinking you're putting into this, yeah, I do believe you are in error on the point. In a significant way, that being said, God is your judge, not me, in terms of your relationship to him. Hey, thank you for the call. This is exactly what I asked for today. Uh, let us go over to John, and John's not there. Let's go over to Sonia in Jamestown, North Carolina. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. Sure I, I want to say that uh, in regards to eternal security, 
As a Pentecostal, I do agree with you. Okay. But the Baptist church that I go to disagrees with both of us. So, And while I don't debate them or argue with them, I would like very much to hear your position on John 10.28 and 1 John 2.19, which are the two main verses yeah. that I hear from them. So John Thank 10, you so much. Sure thing. So John 10.28, that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. And yeah, I agree with that. No one can. So there's no debating that, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, that nothing in itself has the power to pull us away from the Lord. It's entirely a matter of will we stay or not. In other words, God does not force his children to stay in his house. Nowhere does he force us to stay in his house in the Bible, which is why all the verses that we raise come down to our will, come down to our choice, come down to that as children of God, we can still turn away from him. As children of God, we can still reject him. So all of the warnings that we give from Hebrews 2, from Hebrews 3, from Hebrews 4, from Hebrews 10, from Hebrews 12, from Second Peter 2, from other passages that clearly speak of the danger of apostasy, uh, they remain just the same. Yes, I, I dwell in complete security. I never, ever, I'm, ever for a split second worry about, quote, losing my salvation. At the same time, I'm, I'm careful with my walk before God, recognizing that, that I can walk away. As for 1 John 2.19, it doesn't tell us that every person who ever falls away was never truly saved. It's just saying that those who left, they're obviously never really part of us, otherwise they'd still be here with us. John's making an observation there. What, what, he's, what he's saying is, yeah, there were, there were people that were among us. If they were, you know what, it's like, you, you, you're forming some team and you're, you're building some team, you know, in, in the business place. And how many are really with us for the long term? And when it gets rough, you're going to be here. When you have to sacrifice, you're going to be here. And then a month later, half the people have dropped out. You say, hey, they never really bought into our values. That's why they're not here anymore. They never really signed up for the long haul. That's why we weed them out to see those who are really with us. So that's all First John saying. If they had really been with us, they would have stayed with us. It's not saying it's impossible for someone who was with us to ever leave us. It's saying, yeah, these people left, they're obviously never really with us or they would have stuck around. So I let that first stand by itself. And that's certainly the case with many. Yeah, they're in church for a while, but they were never really saved or they still would have been here. And then others, yeah, they turned away. And as it says in Second Peter 2, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn away. Because... Uh, and that's likened to a dog returning to its vomit and a fool returning to its folly. So they abandoned and they went back, and we have the power to do that. So that's how I'd respond. I agree very, very much. Thank you. All right. You are very welcome. Uh, let us go over to Kathy in St. Louis, Missouri. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Oh, thank you, Dr. Brown. I didn't know if you were going to have enough time for me today. Yeah. This is about... Um, the 144,000 in the book of Revelation, in your book, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, it's not a disagreement as much as I wondered why I felt you had omitted a, an important passage. It's been a little, I only read your book once, it was a little over a year ago, but you say, it, you use Revelation 14.1 on the bottom of page 223, the followers of the Lamb, the 144,000, but there's a much more detailed passage in Revelation 7, 4 through 8, and 
I don't re- recall you using that in your book where it lists the tribes out by the 12 tribes of Israel out by name. Right. So the deal is that the revelation sections of the book were written by Professor Craig Keener, not by me. Uh, and he's, he's a brilliant New Testament scholar, leaves me in the dust behind them in that regard. And as far as the book of Revelation, he's an expert in it. So why he quoted one text and not the other, uh, I, I can't answer that. I, I don't know why. So uh, unfortunately, I, I can't interact more with your question. I would say this, though, just, just my, own, my own view is that the listing of the 12 tribes is meant to be symbolic because one whole tribe is missing, right? Tribe of Dan, that it is meant to be symbolic of the salvation of all Israel at the end of the age, that 12 times 12,000 is speaking of the fullness of Israel, so Israel's salvation at the end of the age. But why Revelation 14 was quoted versus Revelation 7, I'd have to look at the book and see the context uh, and as far as I know, that was written by Craig Keener, as I said. So, I, I, uh, unfortunately, I can't answer in more depth because as far as I know, I didn't write that, that line or that paragraph. But thank you. Thank you for the call. I wish I could have helped more. Uh, let's go to uh, John in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. How are you? I appreciate your show. Thank you. Okay, I, I I got a quick one for you. When uh, John the Baptist and the Pharisees and Sadducees are coming to him, yeah, and he says, "You serpents, you generation of vipers." Yeah, I look up this word "generation." It's a Greek word, ten eighty one, and it means offspring only. If it was to mean through uh, proselytization, they would have used the Greek word ten eighty one, which brings someone over to by preaching to them. So this 1080 means it's physical offspring only. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so just, yeah, you're, you're, you're quoting from numbers, of course, that would relate to Strong's Concordance, right? So when, when, when uh, Jesus, uh, when John is addressing them, uh, brood of vipers, um, yeah, it, it's, they, they are the spiritual offspring, of the enemy, all right? It's not literal children. John eight forty four, when Jesus says to Jewish leaders who are rejecting him, you are of your father, the devil. The Old Testament uses that imagery. You're a brood of vipers. It didn't mean that they were literally born of physical snakes or literally born of Satan, but spiritually, that's what it's talking about, spiritual offspring. And, and this word absolutely, can, it's used metaphorically. It's common sense metaphorical use. So not a literal seed of a literal snake, right? But spiritual offspring of Satan who rejects God. Yeah. First uh, John five nineteen. the whole world is under the power of the evil one. Uh, Ephesians 2, we were by nature children of wrath, doing the, the will of Satan. Second Sa- uh, Chron- uh, Corinthians 4, 4, Satan's the God of this age. So he does have spiritual offspring for sure. Yeah, but not literal offspring. Thank you for the call. And do we have time? All right, really quickly, Chris in Sardis, Georgia. Dive right in, please. Yeah, uh, Doc Brown, are you there? Yeah, I am. Sorry to rush you, but please go ahead. Yes, sir. Uh, I just want to say, uh, one, I'm, I'm a little disappointed. I don't see any uh, orange carpet in that uh, that office anywhere. Ah, uh, yeah, well, it's it, we, we, we carry the spirit of, of the orange. 
Well, uh, my question was something that I, I've been looking at and delving into. Uh, I got in a conversation with uh, an individual about tongues and interpretations and stuff, and I feel like uh, I looked into the verse Jeremiah 33, 3, mm-hmm. and of course, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Yeah, I know yeah. you are. Uh, call unto me, and I will answer you, and I will show you great and mighty things that you don't know. And there are several different uh, variations of that verse, and I think one of the very variations is mysteries. Uh, call unto me, and I'll show you mysteries, you know. Um, and, of course, in Romans 8, it talks about praying in the, in the Spirit, right? And it says when you when you don't know what to pray for, you pray in the Spirit, and you, uh, and you pray through mysteries. Yeah, yeah, so just to jump in, because we're out of time, the reference to the orange, there was this very uh, the usual color orange carpet in our main building that we made it in Browns Revival School of Ministry. That was called the orange. The other main building was the blue. So that was the reference to that no orange carpet here. Just a, a joke that I would recognize. But no, I, I don't connect the God answering us here and, 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 and uh, answering with things that, that we don't know. All right, um, I don't. I don't look at that. This is great and mighty things here. It's literally Hebrew. Lodi Dutem, which you don't know. I don't connect that with the mysteries, praying in the spirit, mysteries to God, First Corinthians fourteen or Romans eight. I don't. I don't see a direct connection between that and Jeremiah thirty-three three. All right, with that, friends, we're out of here. An important interview tomorrow. You don't want to miss it. Trust me on this. We'll be right back tomorrow. Another program powered by the Truth Network.